people say I'm judgmental, which is not wrong. Um, I'm quite a judgmental person. I wouldn't use the vulgarities because you can't do that on a PG podcast. No, no, you can, you can. That's I what the beep want. is for. I don't want. I must, I must be seen as like an angel. So far, Han, uh, what is your debate license? Um, talking about my debate license, so I started debating, or at least I had my first um, try at debating in Sec 4. Uh, basically, like the debate club hasn't started out in my secondary school, uh, which is Marisela High. Um, the teacher decided to grab a bunch of students who were good at English, and she was like, okay, go for JGs, here you go. Um, so that was like my first experience uh, in debating. Not a very pleasant one because I didn't really know what was going on. Um, afterwards, what happened was I decided to continue debating in junior college. So I debated in Tampanese Junior College for two years. And then um, proceeding from that, I went to NUS debates and debated for another four years there. In terms of my other experience, I guess like I was a debate coach for three schools. I coached Yusuf Ishak Secondary School um, in 2016, from 2016 to 2017. Um, and then I coached Nanyang Girls High from 2017 to 2019. Um, last, the last school I coached was Hua Chong Junior College from 2019 to 2020. There's a lot to unpack there, right? Starting with your experiences in Maristella. Um, what made you decide that you wanted to do something like JG's, um, even when you had no idea what debates was or like how to debate. So I think like for for a while now, or at least the reason why I joined debating in secondary four is primarily because debating to me was not just a sport where people engage in, you know, intellectual conversations or pseudo-intellectual conversations. In all honesty, do we really know what we are talking about at the age of 16 or 15? But the biggest reason why I joined debating was it felt to me that debating gave me an avenue to speak up about issues that I felt were important to me. But it also felt like it gave me a voice in an environment where people had to listen. Being a only Malay Muslim boy in like a SAP school, uh, for those who don't know, SAP school is like typically a predominantly Chinese school. <laughs> so I was the only Malay Muslim student there. And sometimes it was very difficult to feel... Um, to feel like I have a voice in like conversations with friends or even within like the classroom environment. Uh, and so debate was an outlet for me. I'm, I, I would say like being the first or second batch of like debaters in Marisela, um, we were honestly quite sh- um, to put it bluntly. That brings us on to junior college, right? So after the experience debating in secondary school, I assumed you enjoyed it quite a bit. How different was debating for TPJC compared to debating for Maristella? So back in secondary school, and even till today, some people might say that I'm quite ignorant, which is possible. There's some truth to it. I'm quite ignorant about many things in this world. Um, people tend to call me the bimbo of the team, which is also fairly accurate. So in junior college, I think I was exposed to a much more difficult level of debating. I was exposed to issues that I've never really heard about. People were talking about China-US, like, you know, conflict. And I'm like, China-US conflict? We are in Singapore. Why do we have to talk about those countries? <laughs> so, What is China? <laughs> correct. Um, okay. Yeah, so in junior college, it was a, it, I guess it was still quite 
game-changing for me. I didn't realize how difficult debating really was. Because in secondary school, you know, like, we have, like, a one... Like, we have one week preparation time to prepare one case. And, like, even, like, that one week is to prepare a six-minute speech. And then, like, in junior college, you're just, like, tossed into this new world where... Coming from like a division two background, um, unless you make it to the out rounds in JGs, you rarely have to do like impromptu like prep. So in junior college, that was like my first impromptu prep. And like the, my coach Dan was just like, you have 30 minutes to prep. And I'm like, how do I prep? Do I like Google for the answers? And they're like, no, you can't Google. I'm just like, then how do anyone debate? Like, is it possible? <laughs> um, yeah, so, so that was like the jump for me. It was something that I was not prepared for. And in all honesty, like, I guess this is where like, a large part of my debating motivation came from. I'm a very salty person when it comes to debating. <laughs> so in secondary four, like, we didn't break at JG's. I was quite upset. I was just like, why can no one understand my brilliance, even though I was a big boy of the team? I don't know why I expected people to think I was smart. So when I went to junior college, and I on the first day of, like, lessons, and people were like, oh, talking about which CCA they wanted to join, uh, and that's where I met my then teammates, like Subra and Jinping, because they were both um, in my same class as well. And Subra had prior debating experience, and I asked Subra, like, are you intending to join debates again? And both of us decided that no, there's no way we're going to join debates again, we're going to try something, like, new, we're going to do rock climbing or something <laughs> like that. And then both of us decided to sign up for debating Charles, and we're just like, you know what, I feel like both of us have a chip off our shoulder that we need to prove that we can do this. Honestly though, like, even where I came from, correct, every single sec 4 would be like, I'm not doing debate, you know, I'm doing something else. I'm joining Entrepreneurs Club, I'm joining Interact, I'm joining this, joining that. And, you know, whenever my juniors tell me that, when they're, when they're sec 4, they tell me this, I'll just be like, you only tell me this after Charles are finished. You don't tell me before. I don't believe you. Correct. And sure enough, most of them come crawling back. Correct. Debate is a sport that never stops giving, you know? It just demands for you to be in the sport for as long as possible. Technically, it, ne- it never stops taking away from uh, you. Taking away your time. That's very true. I'm the one that never stopped giving to debating. That's right. That's right. Um. So, you, you debated in JC. Presumably, it went better than in Mary's Taylor, I hope? The unfortunate part, I guess, is that my club was blessed with, like, talented debaters. Um, Trim right. Ping, Subra, and then right. there was me, um, who really doesn't have talent in debating. That's not true. No, it's, <laughs> I mean... it's so true. <laughs> like, um, it was very funny because, like, even, like, on, um, I guess, like, this was, like, our debate graduation in J2, and then my coach Dan Sai, uh, he's funny, man, um, and he was giving, like, a debate farewell speech, and then he he decided to include in his farewell speech the description of each of us, like, J2s. And the first description he says about Jim Ping was like, ah, Jim Ping, he has a modicum of talent in debating, you know, he's a smart boy. And then it went to me, and I was just like, I'm ready, praise me, tell me I'm smart. And he's like, and then there's Farhan, who has no talent whatsoever in debating. Like, what? <laughs> none whatsoever. <laughs> and then he continued with, if there's one thing that makes Farhan Farhan is his hard work. And, he, and then he... It was kind of like a backhanded compliment. On one hand, he's just like, Farhan works really hard. And then on the other hand, he's right. just like, Farhan <laughs> would hound me after every training. He would like pursue me until the bus stop and he would keep asking questions, not letting me go. And I'm just like, so are you complimenting me or are you complaining that I'm just like a like a stalker or like someone that harasses you? <laughs> 
But I mean, the point about debating talent and hard work, I mean, it makes a big difference when you do work hard, right? Like, I mean, that's something that is a is an equalizer to some extent mm, um, when you're able to put in that effort. And actually, that brings me on to university debating, right? Because you've succeeded quite a lot in uni debating. You were Austro's finalist. You've done this, you've done that in, in all of the different major tournaments. So clearly something went right there. What was this transition into uni debating like? And how did you then find your voice and find that new level of competence, new skill level when you transition into uni debating? Thank you first for saying that I succeeded. It's nice getting some validation every once in a while. (laughs) Um, But putting that aside, there are some things that you learn in junior college debating that is perhaps not as applicable in university debating. Uh, One is just like the way that we think about the world or, or the experiences that we have. Um, and I think that that makes up quite a huge bulk of my university debating. I, I would say during my initial years of university debating, it was quite difficult because as you, you know, as a JC debater, you have like a coach who is always there for you, you know, guiding you along and giving you suggestions and tips on how to improve. But you don't really get that kind of support structure when you enter into a university club. Uh, that is not to say that, you know, our seniors don't care about us. It's just that even as seniors, like, their primary role is not to train us per se, but is to do right. what they're best at, which is, you know, getting more debate achievements for the club or even getting more debate achievements for their own personal, like, need for validation or personal need for success. Sometimes in, in a university club, you're still kind of on your own and ha- in having to navigate the environment that you are in. When I first started out university debating in year one, like, there was a huge need or a huge desire from me in wanting to fit in with like, I guess like the popular squad in debating, hoping to be liked by others. Uh, and this is what, you know, we debaters are like, call, oh, you're such a social climber. You're just friends with them for like, <laughs> you know, the rap. And in all honesty, that was something that I did in year one. Like, I felt like I needed to play the social game. I, I felt like I needed to be as popular as I can be so that people can recognize me. People will give me the attention. People will think that I'm a good debater, which is a very bizarre thing if you think about it. Why is it that, right. you know, just because people think or know of you means that you're a good debater. Many people can know of you and still think you're a sh** debater. But that's something I believed in, right? It felt like hard work or results didn't really matter. Uh, and what mattered the right. most is people liking me uh, and trying to fit right. in with the debate crowd. So I have this I have this theory that it's, it's not a university thing per se, mm. but it's kind of uh, when you're at the top or so-called the top of debating, and there's this level of competition, then that's where the the desire to fit in really comes in. Because, I I mean, when you talk about your experiences, I just feel like it mirrors a lot of what I went through in, like, year one to four in RI. There's this group of very good debaters, you know, many of whom will end up being in world schools or being, like, you know, top speakers at JGs. And then there's, you know, people who are really just trying to struggle to try and get, get into that particular group and that particular clique. You want to be like recognized as somebody who is good at what they're doing and that's itself quite unhealthy like it really detracted from the a lot of the experiences the good experiences i could have had when i was in school i'm i suspect you probably didn't have this in maristella because of the way that the program worked yeah so i think you're right both in like maristella and like tampanese junior college there was never any expectation for our teams to do well right because if you think about it we were like the underdogs of like you know the competition and in fact like people were genuinely surprised when you know my team um tampanese junior college uh, broke at MIDCs in J2 because like prior to that we haven't broken at MIDCs for like a good like six to seven years Uh, and obviously like you know detracting away from the earlier conversation like so in MIDCs right. when we broke eight and then we proceed to like knock out the top seat then 
in the quarterfinals. Like, a lot of, I, I would say, the top schools or the powerhouses in debating, not gonna name names, when it was announced that we beat the top seat back then, many of the schools just turned and looked at us and they were like, whoa, are you for real? Like, did that team really <laughs> beat the top seat? And I was just like, um, excuse you, stop judging. <laughs> like, of course. <laughs> like, what makes you think that we can't beat them? I think one of the comments that um, sparked quite a huge like, discussion was a team that went like, you know, this is a bunch of neighborhood school kids. How is it possible that they were able to beat the top seed? Um, and it really, I, I guess it, it gives a glimpse to how certain elitist structures exist in debating. Um, and that there's a traditional understanding that there are some debate powerhouses that are meant to win. And that those right. people who, or those schools that don't fall into the traditional or conventional understanding of what a debating powerhouse is, just are meant to fill the bottom spot, to just lose. Right. And that if they right. do succeed, it's always a matter of luck as opposed to a matter of skills, which is, if you think right. about it, pretty disheartening for a lot of young debaters who are still trying their best, especially if they're not from a traditional powerhouse school where their schools don't even have like the resources to fund their debate competitions. Many of these students have to, you know, take time and like money out of their own pockets in trying to succeed at a spot against these traditional powerhouses. And I think where it differs in NUS for me then is precisely what you mentioned is that NUS has a long-standing history of like, you know, debaters succeeding at the spot. We have been Asian champions, both AVPs and UADCs. We broke far in worlds as well, like one of the earliest, like, you know, like Asian right. university that succeeded. And there's such a strong legacy in NUS that when I join NUS, there's both this pride, you know, like, I'm very mm. proud of the fact that I'm in NUS debates, like one of the strongest like debating powerhouses in Asia. And there's this need to live up to those expectations because like, you know, former seniors who would be like, oh, you know, you're the new face of NUS, you have the, you know, role and duty to, you know, continue bringing NUS into right. the forefront of the debating circuit. So I think that was a stress that I was not expecting to receive. Uh, and that's why like the initial transition was pretty difficult for me. Do you think that the circuit has changed? Do you think that the circuit has become less elitist in the last seven years? Um, so I think like through my years of coaching as well. Um, so obviously like this is quite funny because technically people would be like, you coach elite schools as well, both Nanyang Junior, right. uh, Nanyang Girls High as well as like Hwachang Junior College. But I would say that to me, it feels like the circuit has changed for the better. Um, I do think there's greater efforts to to engage with like debaters of like different like skill set. But I also do think in terms of like coaching resources or like even like uh debating resources, they're a lot more accessible now than they were previously. So it means that, you know, even like for your schools that are not traditionally powerhouses or like new debating schools, they've been getting a lot of like they are they've been able to access debating resources that they previously would were not able to gain access to. And I think this is where the, the Debate Association Singapore has done a great job in trying to ensure or trying to equalize the playing field to, to some extent uh, by providing like free courses or like non-paid courses for a lot of these like division three schools or like, even division two schools. Um, but I also do think like with the rise of different powerhouses uh, that we are seeing today that's succeeding from like different divisions, um, it's also breaking the whole like, you know, grapple of like control that traditional powerhouses have. Um, so I think like uh, Kenridge Secondary, uh, coached by my mm. uh, former coach Ruben, they went from division 
three and now they're in division one and I feel like it's very difficult for these elitist structures to continue staying in place because they are being challenged by newcomers right. or they are being challenged by other schools which is obviously a good thing in terms of having more diversity of like you know debaters or speakers mm. from di- different background competing for like the championship prizes like so obviously like besides having like actual debate resources such as having a coach such as having money for a coach um, the other thing that students and the only other way in which I can see people equalizing this disparity is just perhaps having a, a, a more positive psyche and mindset in the way to which they engage with like better opponents or like stronger opponents and that I don't know about you, but sometimes I have my own students who are like, no, we don't want to go against that person or that team. They're so good. And in my head, I'm just like, but why don't you want to fight strong competition? Like, the only way to which you ever learn and grow <laughs> is fighting strong competition. Like, what what joy right. do you get from defeating a supposed opponent that you can Like, like taking candy easily? from a baby, yeah, right? Like- <laughs> and, like, and it's obviously like quite bad, right? Because this normalizes the mindset, which is that there are some teams that you would think are traditionally worse than you. And every time you face them, you're either like, oh, I'm going to like beat them because they're so bad at it. Or like, you'll get very angry if they beat you, which is right. all really such a childish behavior. Like, why are you making certain exactly. like stereotypes or assumptions as to how certain like teams are like? Like, just put, right. put your best foot forward, give it your best shot and just debate normally. Like, don't think about any other unnecessary like, you know, like factors or variables. <laughs> Let's move on now to coaching then, because I think this this really transitions nicely into your coaching experience. Uh, I think you've won JGs twice at this stage. Um, Hua Chong JC has, has done well in numerous competitions. I guess my question is, what what's that last 20%? How do you go from being a, a good coach to being a great coach that can get the best out of your team? I would say that the last 20% is really the interactions between the coach and the student and how you treat them as like, you know, both not just as students who are trying to win a debate tournament, but whether you see them as a person, whether you understand how they are behaving, like their the mindset, their psyche, understanding the kind of like problems they may have with regards to debating. So for instance, uh, when I was coaching my Nanyang girls, one issue that they ha- they've had for quite a while is both like an imposter syndrome as well as like a strong inferiority complex. Uh, where they feel like they're never good enough to, to be winning tournaments or to be doing great at tournaments, which is quite bizarre because, you know, people... Because Nanyang girls. Yeah, correct. Because people would just... Like, people assume that it's Nanyang girls and that they are expected to do well. But these girls themselves have, like, huge insecurities. They sometimes have difficulties realizing that they're good enough to make it into the team or that they're good enough to do well at tournaments. Um, right. And I feel like... The mark of a great coach is being able to understand these kind of insecurities that your students have, uh, of which I, I would say that there, there's obviously like a, a spectrum of like coaching methodology that people, that different coaches employ. Uh, one of the coaching methodology that I, I employ is perhaps, I think, treating your kids with compassion and, and really trying to fine tune your coaching strategies to help them improve not only as a debater, but also as a person or like it, it, in, getting them to realize that there are like flaws and inequalities that exist within the system right now and that debating sometimes, although it's important in achieving results, it's also about the process of learning how to be a better debater, which I think a lot of teams tend to forget. Um, so I would say the, the first part is perhaps, you know, to reach at 100% of what a great coach is. I don't really think I am a super great coach. I think they are like way better coaches out there. But in my perspective, I think one is treating your kids with compassion and realizing that they are 
people as well and it you should respect them as much as they respect you and I think respect is something that should be earned even from coaches towards their students like you shouldn't go into a club expecting to be respected just because you're an right, older exactly. figure or just because you're a better debater I think respect is something that needs to be earned even within your student uh, amongst your students uh, and the second one is just teaching them the reality which is that you know debating is a pursuit of achievements but beyond the pursuit for achievements it's what you learn during debating, which is also equally important, like, teach them how to use debating as a skill or as a tool to forward, like, you know, greater discourse or greater discussion amongst their friends. Don't keep it locked up in just this esoteric sports where you're like, yeah, you know, we are a group of debaters in a classroom setting talking right. about, like, <laughs> shit about the world that we assume that we know. When in reality, like, m- most of us, like, even for myself, I would say, that sometimes I'm, I'm just not as learned as, like, your ordinary individual that perhaps has no debating experience, but reads a lot about the world and engages in, you know, these kind of meaningful conversations. It's to realize that there's a world outside of debating and teach them that, you know... How to use debate yeah, to relate to that world outside of debate. Correct, correct. So I, I think that's the mark of what makes a great coach to me. What was the process like in learning these skills for you as a coach? I think as any first-time coach, you want to achieve results. You want to prove to people that you're a good coach, that you're not just a good debater, is that you're a person who can coach a team to win JGs, to win like MIDCs, or to win like multiple tournaments. Because even in 2016, so yes, I made it to semifinals of MIDC in like 2014, but like, who really cares, right? When you enter university, like, like, yes, you did semifinals of MIDC. Great job to you. Like university. That's like half of the cohort. Well done. Correct. (laughs) In in university, like, um, I, I was, I wasn't a great debater by any mark, uh, especially in year one, year two. Um, so I had a similar experience. I felt like I needed to prove myself in, in that, you know, I can achieve results in other aspects of debating, be it like judging, be it coaching. One of my initial difficulties is this whole like, um, I was obsessed with wanting to achieve results or hoping that my students achieve results. And yeah, I, I was, yeah, I, I, in general, I was quite inattentive to the specific needs of my club. Uh, which obviously I regret, like, you know, in hindsight, it's something that I should have taken, like, better care of. And, you know, at the age of 21, like, suddenly you're thrown into a, a, a club with, like, 20 to 30 people of, like, you know, 14 to 16-year-old kids, and you're expected to know what to do with them. And right, you're, right. you're bearing such a huge responsibility, because, like, a lot of the things that you say have a direct influence or I, or I would like to, you know, assume I'm a great man and there is a direct influence on how they think and they be and how they behave. And I would say that sometimes I my inattentiveness, because like, you know, I was focusing on the team that could win and not really giving the day of light to the people who are not on the JG's team or perhaps like, you know, not as competitive was something that I, I deeply regret because I think this would have some profound implication, or I wouldn't say profound, but it has some implication on how they perceive their self-worth. Uh, because, you know, right. as a coach, right, you are the most respected figure or expected to be the most respected figure. And then you only like devote your time and attention towards like the team that's like competitive. So right. I think that's something that I quite, re- I regret quite a lot, um, when I first started out coaching. And obviously, like, this is something that I, I learned later on is something that's quite important is that as a, as a coach, you don't only have the responsibility of making them win achievements. Um, to me, I think that's quite secondary, actually. I think the more important role as a coach for me now, it's about getting them to learn, learn as much as yep. they can get out of debating. Uh, it's realizing that different people have different 
debate trajectory. It's about providing them a universal skill set in which those who intend to quit after four years of debating in secondary school still get something out of it. Still right? get something out of it. And I would say like as as I as I grew more invested into my kids, like in year two, I was really bad at handling my emotions. So like in 2018 when I was coaching like um Nanyang Girls, um and the team was like a a bunch of really brilliant girls, but they are not just brilliant, they're very hardworking, they're very down to earth, they were very willing to learn and listen. So they were they were very strong in their batch in 2018. Like, you know, some people were saying that, you know, this team is expected to win JGs again. Uh, and then they got knocked out in the quarterfinals. What happened was like obviously th- th- this group of girls that I grew so attached to and that they were so willing to learn, they just started crying. And I was just like, oh no, don't cry, don't cry. Cannot cry in front of them. I'm their pillar of support. And then like immediately after they left, <laughs> I went to the car park with like my best friend like Mingling. And then I just sat I just sat down on the ground next to a car and I just started crying because I was just so upset at seeing them cry. Which I actually think is good. Like, I think people should just express whatever emotions that they have and don't, like, keep it locked in. So for those who are listening to this podcast, if you're a guy and you cry, this does not emasculate you. Your masculinity is not affected in any manner. Like, it's okay to express emotions, especially, you know, in a country like Singapore where our emotions are muted all the time, especially if you're a guy. Pretty strange to me. Yes, express as much as you want. Uh, you wanted to talk to us a little bit about um, issues to do with racism and discourse. Perhaps you can start us off. So, just a little bit, I guess, like a background of my race. Um, I am part Malay, part Chinese. But obviously, like, you know, the way to which the CMIO model works in Singapore is that it typically follows after your father. Um, so, when I was born, on my birth certificate, it's written as Malay. So, I would say that in terms of, like, growing up, I had various encounters with casual racism, and in some instances, also very explicit racism. So I grew up in a... I would say that I grew up in terms of like my schooling environment. Um, it was mainly a Chinese school. So I went to the SAP right. program, or the SAP schools, uh, which is right. uh, both in my primary school as well as my secondary school. That's about like 10 years. So in that SAP environment, as you would know, right, um, is that majority of the students there are predominantly Chinese. Both in my primary school and secondary school, I was probably the only Malay student. So there's like obviously like very real dissonance there, cause based on the color of my skin, right. I look different from most of my peers or even my batchmates. So that dissonance first appears on a very like physical level, where you just don't feel like you're the same as any other person there. Um, the second way right. that it manifests is obviously a lot of these batchmates of mine um, had very little experiences uh, interacting with a person of a different race. And this could be a multitude of reasons. Uh, obviously, one of the reasons could potentially be that they grow up in certain neighborhoods where maybe those neighborhoods are just more Chinese dominant uh, than it is a mixture of the different kind of races that we have in Singapore. Because right. of their lack of understanding, I guess, or because I am someone who is abnormal in terms of being like visually different um it leads to you know people like giving like weird stares when they walk past me or the fact that they make like offhand comments like oh he's malay uh interesting as to how you got into this school um and i think people don't realize that those (laughs) versions of casual racism is incredibly discomforting for like 
especially if you're like a minority yeah. in that school, uh, and especially if you, like you're the only one minority in that school. So I think some of the explicit racist comments I've ever gotten, like while in secondary school, um, was this period of time right. where I think Mas Salamat was like, you know, he escaped like the Whitley yeah. Detention Center. And then there would just be people in my class like making offhand remarks because like every time a plane would fly over my school, they'd be like, oh, Faha and your father is like, you know, like the police is finding your father. And I'm like, who the hell is my father? And they'd be like, oh, it's Mas Salamat. I'm just like, guys, I am not related to him whatsoever. And as a minority in this school, I guess, is that you need to find ways to try and deal with those like offensive statements because on one hand there's obviously the whole strategy of like you know fighting back against them or fighting back against like your bullies and then trying to defend yourself um but at the same time you're just like you you like you keep constantly questioning whether that's the right strategy because you're like oh you know i'm just like one person in that school especially like in an environment where people might not be kind towards you like, fighting back might result in a greater backlash against you. Um, so that's one, right? Like, obviously, like, you don't know whether you should even fight back. The second one is that you start internalizing a, a sense of shame. You just start questioning, like, oh, was it, like, wrong for me to be born a particular race? Um, is it true that just because I'm a particular race, I am more likely to demonstrate certain characteristics of behavior that's, you know, negative or objectively bad. Oh, I would say that I was not proud of my race for for, for a period in my life because, like, you know, like, who want to hang out with the Malay? Because a lot of people have the typical stereotype that Malays are lazy, Malays don't do work, uh, they're not a good addition to any, like, group projects. And that obviously becomes very hurtful. And you want to, as a, as a kid trying to grow up in such a hostile environment, and you want to, you know, obviously succeed in life, I guess. There's this part of you that wants to divorce any, like, association or relationship with your race. Do you feel like these behaviours from your peers happen as a result of the fact that you were, like, a token minority? Or do you think that this racism would continue to exist even if there were 15-20% of the population that was Malay or, or minority? I would say that the casual racism would probably still happen. But I do think the way to which we react and respond towards that casual racism would probably be different. So I think when you are a token minority, or maybe token minority is not the best way to put it, uh, in the event where you're like just one individual minority in a school, a lot of your support structure is built around the friends that you have in that schools. Uh, and inevitably, like a lot of your friends would probably be Chinese as well, or not even Chinese, just of any other race that you can associate yourself with and therefore create some sort of a support structure. I guess like given my circumstances, um, where I'm one of the only Malay, both in my primary school and secondary school, my support structures are created around the dominant uh, ethnic group, which is the Chinese. Right. Um, right. And sometimes like, as much as that support structure is there, there are things that you ask yourself as to whether can you share this kind of information? Would they make fun of you if you share this kind of information? Uh, and sometimes the, the problem with casual racism is that it's seen, it's something that's very benign. Like, people don't actually think it's a problem unless be, uh, unless they are called out. Uh, and in some instances, people don't want to listen or they don't want to know why whatever they are saying is a form of a casual racist right. statement. Because the honest truth is no one wants to be seen as a racist. Um, so that's that part, right? right? And and the other part is that 
they have to unlearn a lot of the stuff that they have as to why this is casual racism. And in general, people don't like getting called out. So obviously, like, when you hear the term, like, racism or, like, you know, the term racist, um, there's obviously, like, some intention, or at least the way to which we understand racism is that there must be an intent behind it, that you are purposefully offensive towards a, a particular race or ethnicity. Uh, but I think what people tend to forget as well is that even if you don't, even if you didn't have the intention to be racist, there are certain things or certain behavior that can come off as as something that's implicitly racist. So things that have a racist effect to it, even if you aren't intentionally racist to begin with. Did things get better when you proceeded on to, to JC? Yes, I would say that in Tampines Junior College, I was a lot happier in that there were a lot of... There, were, there was a significantly greater number of Malays or Malay students that I could interact with um, in Tampines Junior College. And obviously, our lived experiences are quite similar um, in that the food that we eat is obviously identical. Um, and these are like experiences that we can bond over. Um, but I'm caught in this like difficult space because, as I said earlier, right... Um, the language I grew up learning is Chinese. Uh, and my parents didn't see a need. Or at least they didn't bother teaching me Malay. Chinese is a very pragmatic language to learn in Singapore because of like, you know, businesses, corporations, and therefore you you want to pick up the uh, language Mandarin. But then when I tried to hang out or or attempt to put myself out there in interacting with the Malay students as well, there's also a difficulty because I have no ability to speak, like, Malay as a language. And sometimes, like, do I feel excluded? The answer is yes. Were people intentionally exclusive? I, I would say the answer is no. I don't think they would be intentionally exclusive. But, like, language itself is a very important tool to which people can, you know, interact and integrate or just, like, you know, forge a stronger sense of friendship. So my inability to speak Malay obviously put me at tension, I guess, because... I'm also not able to fully integrate within the Malay community in, like, Tampines Junior College. Um, and I guess that's the reality that I live, which is I would always feel like an outsider because of the way to which race has been applied to me, uh, as opposed to something that I'm right. fully comfortable with. So I would say, at least, that the first step to dealing with the problem of racism is to have a very frank and open conversation about race um, especially in a country like Singapore. Um, so obviously, I think over here, there's like two schools of thought. The first school of thought is the one where we assume that race, or, or at least the we try to pretend that race is not really a thing, um, and that we try to focus on other things beyond race. Um, and the other school of thought is that is to is giving the recognition that race is something that's important. Um, and this, you know, is where some critics will be like, oh, but if everything is so hyper-racialized, then, like, you know, race will always be a flashpoint of conflict. Perhaps there's some merit to that discussion, but I am of the personal belief that if we don't see race as a point of conversation to have, or acknowledge that racism exists to some extent, like, the issues of race will always just be buried under the rug. So, I think the first step right. forward is just, like, perhaps acknowledging that racism is a, is an issue that we need to talk about. Um, I believe that the second way to move from this is that we need to stop comparing Singapore's progress with racial issues as relative to those of other nations, where the constant comparison would be like, oh, but look at United States. 
there's very there's like police brutality against African Americans. There's very real violence against the Hispanic community. It is worse elsewhere. At least you know in Singapore, there's no real violence against minorities, which is right. obviously I guess it, that's that's true. Like in terms of like where we are as a nation and where and how we treat our minorities, but it's important that we don't use nations elsewhere as like a benchmark as to where we want to end up at. So obviously, like no physical violence right. should be the bar in hell. Like that should be the minimum bar that we should not be violent towards our own like minority. <laughs> like, groups within our country. But it doesn't mean that just because we're not violent that we have succeeded in eradicating racism. We don't do this anywhere else, right? We don't We don't say, oh, we are better in GDP per capita than America. So, like, guys, we've succeeded. We are good enough already. We don't do this in any other sphere of our progress except race, which is which seems... Very, very disingenuous to me. Yeah, which is which is why I think like people should aspire towards something greater as opposed to aspiring towards the bare minimum. I think the third thing is perhaps as a as a as an ally of minority groups, perhaps take a step back and just listen to these minorities who are sharing their experiences without getting too defensive. People don't realize that sometimes it's incredibly difficult for a minority to share their experiences of racism because of all the kind of stereotypes that's placed on the minority. For example, this person is attention-seeking, this person just wants to stir the pot and bring about trouble when the problem is not that bad. So I would say the first thing is to not get overly defensive because it's already very emotionally exhausting and psychologically difficult for a minority to share their experiences. Listen to their experiences and be able to understand that you know these experiences are true towards these minorities. Don't see it as an attack on you. Rather, it's a, I guess, a, a broader criticism of how society is like. Um, and when you're able to understand that from that perspective, you're less likely to get defensive or feel that this is a personal attack towards you. And just really understanding what the experiences are. So I, I think a good Instagram page that discusses minority exp- uh, experiences is this Instagram group called um, Minority Voices. Um, and I encourage all of the listeners of this podcast to actually just go to their Instagram handle and just read up on these stories that they've shared, the, the experiences of racism that they've had. And you'll be shocked to understand how different their experiences are compared to yourself while you're growing up. And I, I think that's good. Then obviously there's a whole flip side, right? Um, ah, you know, Chinese people also experience racism. Uh, and I don't deny the fact that, you know, Chinese individuals, um, experience racism as well, uh, depending on, on the context or, or, or situation that they are in. It's obviously a, a question of priority, right? No one is saying that, you know, right. Chinese individuals in Singapore don't experience racism. They probably do to some extent. Um, but it's about who exactly do we want to try to focus our attention first. Because at the end of the day, when it comes to discussion of race, and when it comes to a discussion of allocating our time, effort, and even resources, it's about prioritization. Which group right. perhaps experience racism more? You know, when, when, the, when the Chinese person goes, oh yeah, but I also, you know, I also experience racism, so what's the big deal? Right? It's often just a deflecting tool to avoid talking about how other people are being treated. So, I, I, I do think, like, in terms of, like, the last thing I, I would say with regards to this topic is that even, like, within the structures that we are in, people should discuss race more openly 
and be able and, and be willing to correct these like discussions. So obviously like the extent of, of racial unity that we usually get like while growing up is like a whole racial harmony day. Where on that day everyone is like, yeah, kumbaya, you know, we are all best friends with different races. Uh people wear different ethnic costumes to show that, you know, they are a fan or they love the other race. Uh, which is obviously a, a, still a good thing, right? Racial Harmony Day is objectively a good point uh, for conversation. But I, I do think it needs to be more than that. It's, it's a, as I said, it just boils down back to the realization that casual racism is a problem. Um, and to deny that it's a problem, it means that any attempts to, to, to reconcile differences, any attempts to promote racial harmony is quite futile because we are not willing to first acknowledge that casual racism is a thing, microaggressions is a thing that people experience. I've read stories of people online who couldn't get a job because their, their employers don't want them to wear their hijab during work. Or the fact that, you know, some like people who are trying to apply for, for a place to rent and then like you get these like uh, land owners or, or flat owners asking you questions like, are you a Malay or are you an Indian? Because like if you're either one of them, then we don't want to rent a place to you. And obviously these are very real like costs borne by the minority group. Like these are opportunities that are lost. You're either like, you know, losing a job in some instances right. where people are like, you need to speak Chinese or you need to have Mandarin for the job. In, in some cases, obviously, if, if the job interacts widely with a particular demographic that requires that language, then sure. But in some cases, like the job description itself is pretty vague. It doesn't actually explain to you why Mandarin is a prerequisite sure. to entering the job. And it becomes sometimes quite, quite convenient for people to say like, if you can't speak Mandarin, then I'm sorry, like you'll be deprioritized in terms of our hiring list. So it's true. Maybe like mm. explicit discrimination doesn't happen in Singapore. Um, obviously, yeah, some people will disagree. Like maybe like explicit racism has happened to them and it has happened to many of us. But it's important that we just don't look at the things that are explicit, but look at the things that are implicit as well. And I think only then when, when we look at the implicit things and realize that, hey, actually this is a problem, only then I think will we truly be a, a race conscious society that's willing to take additional efforts to repair the kind of damages that have been built across the years. I feel like we, we tend to always see race at least debaters tend to always see race as just a topic to be discussed in a de- in debate land without really um, focusing on the real implications to real people in our current civil society. We talk about race within our own like bubble, but we sometimes are afraid to expand beyond that bubble for for reasons such as reprisal. So for instance, like and I agree with you, like in debating we talk a lot about race. Um and when we're outside of debating, sometimes it's very hard to talk about those issues. So, for example, if you're talking to your parents who made a racist comment, there's a very real sense of, like, a power imbalance. Like, on one hand, you're just like, should I call my parents out for the racist remark that they've made? But on the other hand, if I do call them out, it's very likely that they will punish me for it, they will scold me for it, they'll be like, why are you talking back to your parents? And these are very real things that people face. And and I don't blame them. Like, I, I think everyone should find that space where they feel comfortable to talk about race or correcting race amongst their own social circle first uh, before trying to expand further out. Because 
everyone and every one person that you're able to convince in your social circle to be an ally of like minority groups or like minority races is a big victory for 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 minority movements or minority groups in Singapore. But I do think people need to realize that as as you know, small advocates for for people who are fighting for race equality, that there's a basket of tools at our disposal, we don't always have to use calling out as a mechanism for introducing change. We need to understand that there are different strategies, different tools that we can use at appropriate times. Um, and I think that's what's important for not only the race advocates, but also important for, I guess, allies who, who, who just want to provide assistance and help. Yeah, and I, I think that's a good way to, to move the conversation forward. Shall we move on to debate much more then? I think the difference between you and Joel and Kevin um, are that they're a lot younger than you. <laughs> wow. I feel personally attacked. Is this like an ageist <laughs> remark? Wow. No, I'm 25, no. fellow listeners. I'm not that yes, old. Yes, yes. You are 25. But you know, like, like Kevin is... Kevin literally makes fun of me for being a dino. And I'm just like... Can you can you nice. can you actually not like I I still want to think of myself. I must be a fossil, young, right? <laughs> um, but that also means uh to, to some extent like right. Uh, I I suspect that your debate Maharashtra mm. names will look a little bit different from from um uh, the demographic that those those two chose. So perhaps you can go through you know um who you chose for your Maharashtra and why. You know, in all honesty, right, like this is where one of Fahan's bimbo moments is going to come in. When you first say Mount Rushmore, I was like, what the hell is a Mount Rushmore? <laughs> I had to Google what Mount Rushmore is because I don't even know how many faces this is on that stupid mountain. I, to be honest, I don't even know. Is it actually a mountain or is it like a... Yes, it's a, it's a mountain. So it's not, obviously it's not a natural formation. Oh, <laughs> like, the mountain didn't just like sprout for faces there. So people decide, like, so a group yes. of people decided to defile the mountain by carving yes. faces. Yeah. I see. Yeah, so you see, like, these bimbo moments exist all the time. I don't know why people, like, get me to do these things. But, okay, so like the first okay. group, <laughs> the first group of my Mount Rushmore, and I guess their faces can be half half then, um, is, it'll be my coaches in, like, junior college. Um, so many younger debaters probably won't know of them. Or at least one of my coach, they probably won't know. Cause like, you know, he has moved on, um, in life and has d- decided to do things that are Successfully not retired. <laughs> successfully retired. He has retired quite successfully. Um, so it'll be my coaches in junior college. Um, their name, their names are like Syed and like Ruben. People would know Ruben. Um, plug in for Ruben. You know, he runs a rhetoric collective. If you need debating lessons, go find him. He's a fantastic coach. Um, and, and they just got a new office as well. So. Correct. All correct. the more reason. Yeah. So like, um, so Syed and Ruben are probably like, two very pivot like important people uh in my debating career. Um and I think both of them have like different debating style or not debating style or like coaching methodology which I really appreciated. I, I, I wouldn't expect, you know, being so close to Syed, even till today I'm super close to both my coaches, like Syed and Ruben. Like we go for like holidays together, of which I don't think people normally do that with their coaches. Uh and that's because we've transitioned from, you know, being a coach student relationship to just being like really close friends. Um, right. What Syed taught me, I think, is really just expanded my way of thinking about issues, or at least exposing me to the reality that I was previously not intimate or like connected to. Um, he taught me the idea, or at least he broadened my perspective at different issues, understanding that you know different issues, um, interacts like you know, um, in 
multifaceted manners. But I think the most important thing, the most important thing that Syed taught me was just to be true to myself or, or to understand that, you know, I value as a person beyond just debating as a skill set. Um, so people don't know, but like, Syed gave me like fantastic advice as to how I should navigate debating in general, both in like junior college as well as in university. He told me that, you know, university has its own like, you know, can of worms that I have to deal with and that one of the things that he told me before I entered university was to hold tight to the values that I find important uh, and, and, and try not to be easily corrupted or easily swayed according to what are the demands or expectations of people in the university circuit. Um, and Syed also taught me a lot about just, you know, being a better person, like, don't right. be too judgmental, to always, like, keep my biases and, like, you know, prejudices in check. Um, and I think he, he doesn't realise, like, how much he has done for me as, like, as a coach and as a friend. Like, he has done more so than I can ever repay him. Um, so, Syed, pivotal moment in my debating career. Has he influenced the way that you coach? Oh, for sure, for sure. So, like, Syed is someone that I think, like, treats his students with compassion. Um, but it's a nice mixture of compassion as well as reality. One of the first couple of sessions that we've had with him, so as a club, we were sitting outside, we were waiting for him, and then he arrives, and he decided to engage in, like, a casual conversation with us. Um, till today, I'm just like, this is your way of making money without having to coach us. And he firmly denies this <laughs> allegation. But <laughs> he, he had a very real conversation with us, I guess. Like, he just sat there and he looked at all of us and he was like, statistically, out of 10, like, out of the 10 people here, only four of you will make it to university. And I was shook. I was just like, <sighs> wait, what? And then I looked at Jim Ping, I looked at Subra, I was like, one. Two, and I look at myself, I was like, three, I was like, I must be one of those, right? Yeah, but like, he has this ability to, to mix in like a, a, a shred of reality for us to understand that, you know, things are not as easy as we think it is. Right. And that we should always be prepared for what's coming at us. And that I think is something that's quite important. Alright, let's move on to number two then. Yes, number two, Ruben, part of the same group. So I think where Ruben and Syed differs is because if I'm not wrong, I think TPJC was the very first school he coached um, as a as a professional coach. Uh, so as a first school he coached, I think he he went through the same thing, which is that you know he wanted us to achieve or, or get succeed and and get the achievements that you know um, we deserve or that he feels that we should deserve. Um, and Ruben is someone that is both on one hand takes debating seriously in that he really goes through every single detail to ensure that we are most prepared for a debate. There was once, like, our training session started at 3pm and it only ended at, like, 10pm because, like, we were so stressed out about MIDCs and, like, even, like, um, we decided to have dinner with him at, like, the Domino's Pizza near TPJC, now defunct because it's been combined with Meridian Junior College. Um, we just, like, hounded and harassed him even during dinner. And, like, Ruben never once complained. He'll, he, he'll just sit there patiently going through with us all the worries that we've had. And he's someone that doesn't, like, take life too seriously as well, which I really appreciate from a coach. So, like, obviously, like, Ruben is the kind that would, you know, want us to succeed and he'll teach us the ways to succeed. So he was a very technical coach. Um, and he was working on all the bits and pieces that we were 
uh, lacking. Um, but when we don't succeed, or let's say when we don't break, he would never like blame us, or he would never take his anger or frustration out of us. I remember like so in my MIDC years, there was a bit of like a controversy basically. Um, so initially in twenty uh in J two, the one that we made semifinals, initially we didn't break. Uh yeah, so there's a story behind this. Um, so the last round that we had at MIDC, and we need, back then it's like three uh three rounds, and you need two rounds to. Yeah, uh, you need to minimum two rounds chance to break, of right? breaking, right? Yeah. Correct. So back then, we won our first round, we lost our second round, and the third round was announced as a loss. And then we were obviously like quite sad. And then we were just sitting there frowning. And then Ruben, who was next to us, looked at us and he just started laughing. And he was like, haha, you losers. Like, why are you all so sad? Like, like, come on, man. Don't be lame. Like, you know, even if you all lose, like, whatever. So like, it's very, sh- like, it's very nice. Like, he, right. he, he, he wants us to do well, but he doesn't blame us or he doesn't scold us when we don't. So it was very funny because like, we were all like really like mopey about it. And then we find like, we found the, the judge. And like oh can we get feedback on why we lost and then judge was like uh actually you're one i don't know what's going on i'm gonna go check with them <laughs> and then we told ruben and ruben was like oh my god you are a bunch of losers that have some degree of luck in this world and i was like really ruben why are you such a mm? <laughs> so like and like so like ruben i would say it's someone that i i've learned a lot from um being a coach myself which is it especially if you're getting paid to coach students, you need to give your 110% effort in ensuring that the students learn the best from you. And that's something that I picked up. Like his, his work ethics is something that I deeply admire and deeply respect. Um, and even like, even after I finished like, you know, JC, like junior college debating and he's no longer my coach, right? Um, he would always give me advice every time I needed it. When I was training for Austral's, like in 2019, um, Ruben was very willing to coach my entire team. Uh, for Austros, like he wasn't paid to do so. He he just genuinely wanted to see me succeed and achieve like my my like optimal level at Austros. So like he would give us like free training sessions. He would get us to come down to his like uh, coaching center. He would go through with us the nitty gritty details, like strategy wise, what motions to pick, and he did this out of like compassion. Like the only thing that we ever bought him in return was like a meal. And like if in all honesty, right, for all the amount of effort he put in, a meal was definitely not enough to cover the generosity that he provided to me as well as my team. I think that's something that, that the best coaches all ha- all share in common, right? Um it's just this idea of of doing going above and beyond. Yeah. Correct, correct. So the next group, right, um I would say actually it's like it'll be my teammates from like junior college. Um, so, Junping and Subra. So, in case people don't know, um, Subra and Junping, um, were not only my debate teammates in junior college, they were in my, they were classmates as well. So, like, we had a really great time, like, just, like, you know, growing and learning, both in class as well as, like, debating. Um, and then, um, for people who don't know Junping, um, Junping. GP lessons must have been a nightmare. Ah, uh, yes, GP lessons was a nightmare, cause our right. class had, like, three like, debaters. I can't imagine. Um, oh gosh. Not like, like three debaters. My class had two debaters, and it was, a, it was just monopolized, like, every GP. Uh, our class had three active debaters, <laughs> and two former debaters. Oh yeah, no. It was not a, it was a, your tutor needs a, needed a raise. Oh, oh my god. My tutor will always be complaining. She was like, when will y'all shut up and like let me speak for a minute? And I was just like, I guess. Um, yeah, so Junping and Subra are both like, I would say like part of my Mount Rushmore. They play like very important roles in my debating as well. Um, and I think like a large part of it is because both of them 
are people that I really look up to in debating and people and, and they were debaters that I aspire towards um, as well because they were such like great debaters in like junior college. Um, Chun Ping, for instance, had no prior debating experience in secondary school. He only started debating in junior college uh, and he's, I would say he's one of those people that really has a talent for the sport um, because he, he, he reads a lot. Like, I know, like, you know, this is where my judgy side, like, judgy side comes in. Like, there was once he told me, like, in his free time, this was, like, in J1, in his free time, he goes to Wikipedia, and he clicks random article, and he'll read random articles every day, and I'm like, Oh, man. Um, you're such a nerd. Like, what is this? Obviously, like, people don't judge people, like, listeners of this podcast don't judge other people because they read random Wikipedia articles they might be amazing debaters really um, so like so like jumping, it's a causal link I think between re- reading random articles and being a good debater correct correct the causal link is there um, so Jinping is someone that I, I really looked up to um, he was like very mature like way beyond his years during junior college he had a very I would say, like, a rather profound way of looking at the world and just, like, understanding the information that he was reading. Um, and that was, like, a level of intellect that I was aspiring towards, too, or that I wanted to attain. Um, and Subra, to me as well, is a person I look up to a lot in debating. Um, and I would say that Subra, out of three of us at least, Subra is someone that really loves debating. Like, he loves debating so much that he's not done debating even though he has graduated. <laughs> like, yeah, calling you out, Subra. Like, why are you going for ABPs? Like, dude, we've graduated. Um, he's, he's going for ABPs? Yes, yes, he's going for ABPs. Hey, Subra, don't spoil market, leh. I also say, wow, Subra. <laughs> I'm trying to break here, okay? <laughs> yeah, so like, Subra is someone that I look up to as well because like, he has such a very, he has such a real love and passion for debating. Uh, and that's, and that doesn't seem to have changed across the years. Um, even from like junior college onwards. And the thing about Subra is, Subra is someone that's very compassionate as well. And he would usually listen to my woes and worries that I've had about debating. He would like give me suggestions on how to, you know, reconcile with those like feelings of inadequacy that I have. And all in all, like both of them, and I, I would say the reason why I continued debating as well is largely due to both of them. Um, they were really my support structure. Um, growing up within this whole like debating circuit and that they were always there for me even when like you know we were in different universities and I had problems um although Jim Ping stopped debating like way earlier than Subra and I he has effectively retired he stopped debating in like in year two or like entering year three he stopped debating whereas Subra and I shows that he's a smart one correct he 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 got out quick you know I was like it's like the whole like movie get out he's just like get out and then Subra and I like (laughs) no we are gonna stay in this spot as long as we can um yeah so like even like when we were in different universities like um they will always like show care and concern for me when I'm having my own struggles in NUS debating, when I've never like felt like I was good enough or that I was that these achievements are mine. They will always like step in to remind me that I'm very well deserving of those achievements. And sometimes like in debating, right? Like, it's not just about the sport itself. Like the sport is fun and whatnot. And I enjoy the sport quite a bit. But it's also the people that you meet in in, in the sport that I think is more valuable than whatever right. the activity really is. And that right. there are some people that are genuine, kind-hearted, like, strong, brave, resilient people. And I think, like, Jim Ping and Subra are two of those people that I would say really spurred me to continue debating. And, like, they were people who, who would never give up on me, basically. 
Right, so one last name then. Alright, the one last name. Um, This person is super precious to me. So like, she's my best friend that I meet in NUS debating. Her name is Mingling. Um, and Mingling is like one of my bestest friends in this world. Like, she's so kind. She's so real with me. Um, and I, I would I would say that she's one of the reasons why I, I continued in NUS debating or like, decide to pursue the sport still. Um, and that's because Mingling is a person that really gives no sh- about other people um, or actually like she's a very blunt person or like a very straightforward person she says it as, as she means it like if she doesn't like it she'll, she'll explicitly tell uh, she'll explicitly tell you in the face that she doesn't like it so uh, I remember the reason uh, I remember when I said earlier in this podcast that like I had this whole like problem where in year one, year two, I was constantly trying to fit in. I was doing the whole social climbing game. I was like, please love me. I'm, I'm popular as well. Uh, Mingling is, I, I would say the reason why I stopped that behavior. Um, basically, you know, we were at UADC together. Mingling and I were rooming in, in the same hotel room. Um, and then there was like this whole like opening ceremony. And then I told Mingling, like most people will go to the opening ceremony just to enjoy the opening ceremony, have a nice dinner, and then like, you know, have casual chit chat. But back then I was this like, impetuous year one who's like we must go to this opening dinner we must get our names known we must talk to people and then Mingling was lying on the other bed and she just looked at me and was like and she was like no you want you go yourself I don't want to waste my time there like if you're going there just to make friends like you go make friends yourself and I was just like I was shook you know I was just like are you serious are you not doing this with me and she's like no I don't want I want to watch my Chinese drama and I was just like <laughs> are you serious we flew all the way to Thailand just for you to sit in the hotel room to watch your Chinese drama um so we had I guess like a tiff not really a fight but we were just like I was like just like whining to her 15 minutes later she was just like shut up you want to go you go you don't wait for me and at the end of that 15 minutes, I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to stay in the hotel room. We are going to watch Chinese drama and we're going to order like <laughs> takeouts. Um, so like, I would say like, Mingling is a person that taught me or like, that really like, taught me the idea that I just need to be genuine with myself. I need to be authentic with who I am and not try to make friends in the debate circuit for the sake of you know, trying to achieve some sort of like, you know, results right. or hoping that this reputation will help me in rounds. And that, you know, if I'm good at debating, people would realize and recognize this. And if like people don't, then, you know, that's more of their loss than it is for me. So it, it was really like a development process. Like all of these like Mount faces of Mount Rushmore or Mount Fahanmore, um, all of them have like, all of them were basically teaching me the importance of being myself that, I, I need I needed to be authentic with who I who I am as a person, um, and that you know I shouldn't try to fit in with what is supposedly required to succeed. Like you you get to carve out your own path of success, um, and you carve it out not being reliant on whatever like you know false ideas or previous and, models yeah. of like you know having to suck up to people. Like you want to suck up, go for it. No one's stopping you, but like you will realize that in the process of doing so, you become like pretty unhappy. Like you realize that you're not being yourself and that, you know, at the end of the day, a lot of these friendships that you're making, they're just like false, uh, inauthentic and probably not real. And many of these friendships will eventually die out. And for me, that's kind of what happened uh, when I came to that realization. Uh, We're at the end of the podcast. Uh, Any last, last thoughts? Don't take life too seriously. Like, you know, life is pretty hard as it is. Um, you know, go out there, make friends, learn how to be comfortable with yourself. Don't let the feelings of inadequacy hold you back. 
And, you know, there's more besides debating achievements. Like, don't tie or don't define your self-worth by the level or the amount of debate achievements that you have. Um, and on, on my content issue, like, please, please go educate yourself and be informed about the issues that minority races are facing. Realize and understand the difficulties that they're going through. I'm not saying that, you know, you have to donate money because, you know, people don't, might not have that privilege of doing so, but at least try to be informed of what society is beyond just the bubble that you're in. Um, and I think that advice will apply to uh, across any kind of like minority groups and not just with regards to race and ethnicity. Thank you.